Okay, so last time I preached uh, a few months ago, I made a commitment to you. And I'm here to tell you that I am sticking with it. We are pressing on. If you missed it, that commitment was that every time I teach, I would walk through the book of James with you. And so rather than teaching a one-off message here and there that's uh, seemingly disconnected, every time that I preach, uh, we'll just pick up where we left off in the book of James. And what that does is it creates some continuity, hopefully for you. Uh, it keeps me from having to always decide what I'm going to preach. Uh, and more importantly, it helps me avoid the hard passages, which I tend to do sometimes. And so today, we're just going to keep rolling through the book of James. Last time, we went through James 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And what we did is we saw James in verse 2 jump into a theology of suffering. He addressed how do we handle suffering and trials. Uh, I outlined for you three ways that God uses suffering to teach us to walk in his wisdom, rely on his resources, and realign our goals with his. And all of these things ultimately led us to, to understand and affirm the reality that God is sovereign and in control of our lives. That even in the midst of suffering, God is always working and he is purposeful. And if any of that sounds encouraging to you, if, if you're walking through a season and you feel like you need that, I would encourage you, that message is available to you. Uh, you can go to our website and, and you, can, you can watch that if that will encourage your souls. And so today we jump from verses 1 through 12 and we're going to go 13 to 18. So we'll be in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. And I want to tell you from the beginning, there is a lot of meat uh, in these just six verses. And in fact, it probably could have been two sermons, but if I went from six verses to three verses, we would be in James until I'm old and gray and my grandkids would be here to see us finish. And so we're going we're gonna to press on and, and the way that we eat steak, just one bite at a time, is what we're going to do with this passage today is we're just going to take it one verse at a time. And so we'll begin with the source of temptation. We'll move into what is the course of temptation, and then we'll walk into remorse for temptation, right? And that word remorse, there's really a better word for it, but it rhymes so well that I couldn't not use it, right? We had to do remorse. So <clears throat> as we go, uh, the passage immediately shifts from talking about trials and suffering into temptation. So we have a theology of temptation. We see this shift happen in James 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. He says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, the flow of thought here from verses 2 through 12 into verse 13 is a little bit unknown. And to be honest, James is, is pretty famous for this. When you read the book of James, you'll see him jump from one subject matter to another subject matter and leave you going, how did this connect in his mind? Like, how did he get from here to there? And so right when we begin this morning, we go, we've just seen James talk about God's sovereignty in suffering and trials. And now he's jumping to temptation. A few ways he might have gotten there. One is perhaps he went with this chain reaction type of thinking, right? Maybe James had this connection and he understood that oftentimes when we are in the midst of trials and suffering, there are temptations that directly follow those hardships, 
right? So there's a chain reaction here. Maybe that's what James is addressing, is he understands that when life gets hard, we are most tempted in those trials to doubt God's goodness. For example, perhaps in financial difficulty, we might begin to question God's providence and provision, right? Can God really provide? Things are hard. Will he really do what he said he would do? Maybe in the midst of the loss of a loved one, we might be tempted in that trial to question God's love for us. Maybe to question God's goodness. Maybe to question God's ability to heal. Right? As we watch the profit of unjust people and the suffering of righteous people, perhaps we go through temptations in that way. We're tempted to believe and uh, to doubt God's justice, right? Or maybe even his existence. Perhaps they, they just didn't take the offer on your dream house. And that's a trial for you. And you're tempted to doubt God's dealings with you. Maybe you're tempted to doubt uh, God's gentleness and assume his harshness in the midst of things not going the way that you wanted them to go. I would imagine perhaps there are some here struggling with, with infertility. And maybe you're tempted in the midst of that trial to believe that God is a harsh God and he's punishing you for your past sin. Or you've done something wrong to get on his bad side and he won't allow you to have a kid. And that is wrong. And so here James is maybe going a chain reaction race. Recognizing our trials often come with temptations. That's very possible. Or perhaps it's also possible that it's a principle-driven uh, connection here from verse 12 to verse 13, right? Where he's just talked about the principle of God's sovereignty over our trials and is protecting us from taking an assumptive step into believing that perhaps God is also responsible and sovereign for our temptations, right? That we might assume God is in the midst of our trials, so he has to be also responsible for our temptations. James wants to make it clear that while God is responsible for the testing of Christians for the sake of their sanctification, we see this with Abraham when God tempts Abraham uh, in his handling with Isaac in Genesis 22. We see this in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 32 with King Hezekiah. James wants to make it clear that God is not responsible for our being tempted. And so while we don't exactly know the connection here that James had in mind between verse 12 and verse 13, we do know that James is emphatically making the point, God is in no way responsible for our temptations. And this is an important distinction, right? Because we all have inside of us this very sinful inclination that began with our original parents. If you recall way back to the Garden of Eden, right when God comes to have a conversation with Adam and Eve after they first sinned and eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree, God addresses the situation and what does Adam say? Do you remember? Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Right? Humans, we've been passing the blame literally since the beginning of time. It's what we do. Adam blamed Eve and indirectly blamed God. And so we are all always tempted 
to absolve ourselves from responsibility for our sin. When I was in high school, uh, I had a friend of mine come over to my house, and we were just hanging out for a few hours, and uh, we, we ended up kind of, I guess, getting bored and doing the whole sleeping bag down the stairs thing. You know, we're in Georgia, we don't really get snow, and we can't ski or anything like that, and so we would just hop up in a sleeping bag and kind of tie ourselves into it, and then get at the top of the stairs, and we would push one another down the stairs, and kind of see how far down the stairs we could go, and... Um, So we did this for a while, and at some point during this activity, I don't know, but there developed a um, large hole in the sheetrock in our house on the stairwell. And for years, he blamed me. And for years, I blamed him because neither of us were willing to take responsibility for what we had done. Now, the thing is, it was really pretty insignificant. My, my parents are so amazing and gracious, and they really were not even upset or mad. They were just kind of perplexed at how this, wall magic, this hole in the wall magically happened, and no one knew anything about it. But I said it was him, and he said it was me. And so my dad graciously patched the wall, and, and it wasn't a big deal. But even in something like that, that just wasn't a big deal, We were both refusing to take responsibility over something so petty. In fact, even now, years later, he still won't admit that it was him. (laughs) I just don't understand. But we are so quick, aren't we, to pass the buck, to fail to take responsibility. We blame it on our circumstances. We blame it on other people. We blame it on, well, he started it. Well, God gave me those desires. It's not my fault I was made this way. We blame it on anything and everything that we can except for ourselves. And James is making it abundantly clear here. God is not the one to blame for our temptation. In fact, if you look at the second half of uh, verse 13 there in chapter 1, he makes it clear that God is literally incapable of being tempted himself or tempting anyone else. Temptation and desire for anything not holy and righteous is so counterintuitive to the character of God that he is incapable of feeling it. He is incapable of being enticed by sin or unrighteousness or anything that is not holy. And so we inherently ask the question, where does it come from? If our temptation is not from God, where does it come from? We might think that James would point to Satan, right? And say, well, Satan's the one running around blaming all of us. It's his fault. He's the one dangling the carrot of sin in front of us. And while Satan is certainly involved in the temptations of this world, that's not where James goes. Consider verse 14. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And so James is forcing us to stop and to look in the mirror. Say, we are squarely responsible for our own temptation and sin. I'm responsible for my sin. It's not anybody else's fault. It's not a a thing of circumstance. It's not that person's difficult. I'm responsible for my sin, and you are responsible for your sin. 
James is trying to get us to a place where we acknowledge and recognize our deep state of brokenness. In the way that Paul did, Romans 5.12, he makes it clear there's nothing good in him. And so much so that we are so sinful, we might as well have been there to take the third bite out of the apple. Our sinfulness and brokenness is such that we could have just been there, eaten the apple, and it would not have been any different. That's how responsible we are for our original sin and all of our sin. Romans 7, 18, he says, For I know that nothing good lives in me. See, we're not simply sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are by nature broken people with broken desires and broken hearts. We have to pause and acknowledge this and take responsibility. And then as the passage continues, James moves from the source of sin into the course of sin, right? He moves into this life cycle of sin, if you will. He gives us four stages that are helpfully outlined by David Platt in which we can understand the way that our sin cyclically just continues to go. The first part of the cycle is this. It begins with deception. It begins with deception. We see a clear example of this if we go back to Genesis again and consider the original sin when the serpent engages Adam and Eve. What does he do? He plants a seed of deception in their heart and mind. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Does God really want what's good for you? He really just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. The life cycle of sin begins with a simple seed, a thought of deception. Adam and Eve begin to question God's perimeters and if they're good for them or if they're barriers to their well-being and goodness. I tell our students all the time that God's perimeters, God's laws are not barriers to our joy, but they're like the bumpers in a bowling alley. They keep us in the lane we need to be in. Don't we so often question God's goodness and his laws that he gives us? Man, God is just ruining my fun. He's ruining my happiness because I've got all these rules. That's deception taking place, right? The first stage of our sin is when we begin to to doubt God's good intentions towards us. We might ask, is it really better for my success to to be honest and operate with integrity rather than just do whatever it takes to get ahead? Really? Will I really have more joy giving a portion of my money to the church than buying those new shoes and new clothes that I want or having extra savings? Really? Would, Would that really be better for me long term to give? There's a sense of deception there. Is the traditional view of marriage and fighting for my marriage, is that really better than the self-serving, ever-evolving definition and approach to marriage that culture offers us? Is it really better to just work through what's difficult than just leave and be happier, find somebody else that gives me what I want? Is that really better for me? Could I really be more fulfilled alone in my dorm room on a Thursday night than out partying with everyone else? I mean, really, would I really have more joy doing what God's asking me to do? Right, we all have this deep 
seed of deception within us when we begin to question God's goodness and, and the goodness of his rules and intentions towards us. And all of these thoughts are ultimately asking the question, does God have my best interest at heart? And that question plants a seed in our heart. And when that grows, it turns into desire, which is the second stage we're given of the sin cycle, desire. Look at James 1.14. He makes it clear that we are drawn away and enticed by our own evil desires. Deception leads to desire, and it's our own evil desires that draw us away and entice us. The language that James uses is uh, that of a of fishing language, right? Now, I am not a fisherman, but I understand that we use lures and we use worms because a fish is rarely going to just bite into an empty hook, right? We use something to entice them, something shiny, something sparkly, something appetizing to make that fish not see the danger of the hook, but to bite based on a desire. That's the type of language that we're using here. The hook is, is the danger, and the lure is designed to hide the danger, creating an illusion that the promise of satisfaction is ever-present, and danger is as far away as it could be. It flashes an appeal that sparks a desire that is blind to the danger lying behind it. The desires of our flesh that are developed make us blind. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the dangers of the desire in this way. He says, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished and in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At that moment, God is quite unreal to us. So he's saying it's not in those desires that we have this hatred towards God, but it's that overcome by fleshly desires, we are forgetfulness of God and his goodness and his good intentions for us in his principles and rules for life. We're lured with a promise. Our desires are desirable because sin always makes a promise, doesn't it? It always promises us popularity or stability or hope or a good time or freedom or I'll feel better, I'll think better, I'll have more fun, I'll have more money. Whatever it is, sin always makes a promise. Just like the shiny lure on a hook. We forget about the danger, we forget about the goodness of God, and overcome with our desires, we bite the hook. Which gets us to our third stage of the sin cycle, disobedience. We act on that desire. James 1.15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. We disobey. Deception about what is good and desire for what it was not has led us to act on this desire. Lust, materialism, popularity, fame, whatever it is, we've sunk our teeth into it. Only to find out 
it doesn't deliver on what it promised. Right, maybe, maybe good for a moment, maybe a temporary joy or a temporary satisfaction or something small that would make us feel better, but it never lasts, which is why we always go back to it, right? It never fully satisfies. And by the way, these decisions of disobedience, they don't happen in isolation. You see all of the stages that had to get us there, right? It's, it's what are you thinking theologically? That's why theology matters, because it begins with deception about God's goodness and what he says about you and for you. And then it grows into desire. And then that desire gives birth to this disobedience. I think some of us, we get so frustrated trying to make ourselves behave the way that we should behave, and we just can't conform morally, and so we get frustrated. But what we realize is we're, we're allowing culture to shape our desires, that's why it's so important. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on things above. Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, not conformed to the world. That's why God promises in Ezekiel 36, I'm going to put a new heart in you. Because Christianity is not about moral conforming. It's about spiritually being transformed by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's not changing your desires and if you're not allowing that to happen by faithfully being in the word and coming to church every week and being reminded of God's goodness and engulfing yourself in gospel-centered community and people that are constantly saying, look at God, look at God, but instead allowing culture to shape your desires, it will be really hard and frustrating to behave the way that we say that we should behave. We've got to be transformed, including our desires. But when our desires are shaped by culture, it leads to disobedience, which leads to the fourth sin cycle, which is death. James 1.15, the second part of that. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we go from deception to desire to disobedience to death. When I was younger, probably 12 years old, we lived on this dirt road and we had a lot of woods around us and I would go play in the woods and build forts and hang out and uh, do what kids did before they had cell phones, I guess. And uh, I would do that and one day I was doing that and I found a cat. And this cat was clearly not in great shape, right? It was, it was docile, the, the hair was really matted and it, it looked very uncomfortable, incredibly skinny. And so I took this cat uh, to my house because obviously I'm a really good Samaritan. And I gave this cat a nice little box in the garage with a blanket and some milk. And after a few hours, it became very clear that this cat was pregnant. And so we, we kept the cat in the, house, in, the, in the garage, not in the house. Mama, don't play with that. We kept the cat in the garage and gave it milk, and then one day it became evident to me that this cat was about to give birth. And I was not prepared for what I was about to see. I mean, it, it was cool, but honestly, like at that point, I barely even knew how that, <clears throat> never mind, but I barely knew, understood the process. And so when this cat starts giving birth, my eyes are like huge, right? And I'm like, all right, this is happening. So Dr. Steve came in, you know, and I'm there and I'm like, oh my goodness. And, and it was amazing and disgusting. And I, I watched this first cat come out and it was just such a cool moment. I mean, it was life, right? Like it was like 
God created this to work this way and it's so cool and this first cat comes out and it was so not really beautiful, it was pretty gross, but it was beautiful, you know what I mean, like metaphorically and what was happening and, and I'm so excited and then the second cat comes out and in my mind and in my heart, I'm like, we're gonna have so many kittens and my mom's watching through the window, like we're gonna have so many kittens and, and this second cat comes out and then this third cat comes out and each cat is just more exciting to me and then the fourth cat comes out, only when the fourth cat came out, it didn't move. And I watched the mom cat kind of nudge this fourth kitten, and it didn't move. And the brothers and sisters kind of rolled around on this kitten, and it didn't move. And it became evident that this fourth kitten was already dead when it was born. And what was supposed to be a moment of life and celebration was a moment marked by death and brokenness. And while that it seems a little bit vivid and disturbing, it's an appropriate image for what James is trying to communicate here as he uses the language of birth, desire, conceived, gives birth to sin and brings forth death. Not life, not joy, not purpose, not freedom, but death. We need to understand that this imagery of death is vivid and horrifying, but it's a depiction of the tragedy of our sin. Our sin is serious. It's death. And so what once looked fun and appealing and like it would bring you joy and satisfaction only brings death. It's often said that we must be killing our sin or our sin will be killing us. You've likely heard the illustration, the headline, read about it about a man who, who had a cub lion that he took in as a pet. And it's just a cute cub and he would feed the cub and play with the cub and give the cub a home and kept the cub in his backyard. And he raised the cub and he trained the cub and he got familiar with the cub and used to the cub. And this cub grew to be a 420 pound lion. And the headline, the news article literally says he was outside one day rough playing with his pet. And in this rough playing, the instincts of this lion kicked in. The lion became aggressive and killed the man that had raised it since it was a cub. You see, if we entertain our sin like a pet lion, we feed it, we keep it secret, it seems small, it seems trivial, what's the big deal? Then that sin grows And what once was secret, what once was small, what once we thought would satisfy leads only to death. And I just want to ask you this morning, are you bothered by your sin? Are you taking it seriously? Are you battling? Right. Ultimately, we will always have a sin struggle on this side of heaven. But let's not be fooled into thinking that that means we can become comfortable with our sin. 
Are you bothered by it? Or have you allowed your sin to just create a home in your heart? If the Holy Spirit is in you, this cycle of sin is interrupted with a cycle of acknowledgement, repentance, and battling. And if that's not happening, if sin doesn't bother you, something is wrong. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, no matter what you profess, if you show disregard for Christ by giving yourself over to sin, impenitently and habitually, then heaven is not your home. So if you're living in sin, if you've allowed it to make a house with you, I just implore you today, repent. Acknowledge your brokenness and your responsibility and repent. Turn the other way and run. Recalibrate your desires by spending time in the word. Confess it, repent of it, and trust that the blood of Jesus is sufficient for it. Because while our sins are many, his mercy is more. And that's where James turns our attention at the end of this passage today. James 1, 16 through 17. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James is reminding us that God is good. While he's not responsible for our temptation and our sin, he is responsible for every single good thing we experience in all of life. What he's saying is you can trust him with your trials, that's verses 1 through 12, and he's saying you can turn to him in your temptations, that's 13 through 18. And at first glance, this is another one of those awkward transitions that James gives us, right? So from verse 13 and 15 into 16 and 18, it looks a little bit disjointed talking about sin and temptation and the cycle of sin, and then all of a sudden, oh, God's really, really good. You go, wait, how did James get from here to here? But I think James moves from temptation to the character and the goodness of God because he knows the only way for us to resist temptation of lesser purposes, lesser goals, lesser standards, lesser desires, is by fixing our eyes on the single only thing that is greater, which is God himself. There's a Scotland preacher, he's dead now, his name was Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote a short book, you could read it this afternoon. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This is what he says, that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. What he's saying here is this expulsive power of a new affection is that as we battle our sinful and fleshly desires and temptations, it's not enough to just try and get rid of them, but we have to replace them with something greater and something better. That's what James is doing here. He's saying, Avoid sin, battle sin, fight temptation, of course, but you do that not by just thinking about not being bad, but by looking at what is good and what is beautiful and replacing your desire for sin with a greater, more expulsive desire in who God is. 
Another pastor says it this way. The secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. We're most motivated in the gospel by looking at God's goodness, not browbeating one another to simply behave. It's motivated by grace. In the book of James, it has a reputation for being pretty heavy on works, right? A lot of people talk about James. It's all about action and doing, and, and, and we'll get to that next time in six years when you know, we get through this next passage, but it's be doers of the word, and it's about doing. But this is built on a really hardy foundation of grace because James is saying, take responsibility for your sin. Battle your sin. Don't give in to temptation. But he's also empowering us to do that by showing us a gospel-rich foundation and reminder of how good God is. It always starts with that. He gives us three things quickly. He says that his goodness is unchanging. Every good and perfect gift, this is James 1.17, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We call this the immutability of God. It means God does not change. He is unable to change. This should be really very comforting for us, right? Because what does it mean that God's not going to change? It means no matter how broken I am and how much I blow it, when I wake up tomorrow, God's not going to say, you know, never mind on that. I adopted you as mine, but I, after that, I changed my mind. No, thank you. Right? It means that God doesn't, doesn't look at you on a Friday morning after a bad Thursday and say, you know, you're actually disgusting and repulsive to me now. You're not my child anymore. It means his promises are true day in and day out. It means even in the midst of our stupidity and unfaithfulness, God is faithful. That's what makes him so good. That's a huge comfort that when he promises, his mercies are new every morning. When he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When he promises, I have a plan and I'm working all things to your good. That promise is not dependent on our performance. It's dependent on God's goodness and his goodness never changes. The second characteristic aspect of God's goodness is that his goodness is undeserved. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, of his own will. We should very much pause and understand that it would have been completely fair and completely just for God to have left us in a state of brokenness. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. If God had sent Adam and Eve out of the garden and turned his back on humanity forever and said, good luck, and left all of us for eternity in hell. That would have been just and fair. But God didn't. God sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus came willingly to create a path of reconciliation to take us from hopelessness to hope. And God didn't do this out of obligation. This wasn't a, well, I guess if I have to. God did this out of the goodness of who he is. Our God is a good God. The third thing is that his goodness is unending. The last part of James 1.18, it says that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. This idea of first fruits, it carries the picture of first fruits that 
of what is to come. It's a foretaste of what is to come. So that means the sanctification happening in your heart, those moments where sin's not appealing to you and it's so refreshing, and those moments when you desire holiness and righteousness, those moments when we can gather together and worship and enjoy God, those moments are just a taste of what's waiting for believers on the other side. All the goodness you experience is just a taste of what is to come. It's a taste of what Jesus will do. It's a taste of the new earth. It's a taste of the new body. It's a taste of sin being forever in the background, conquered. It's just a taste. So we have this tension here, right, in these six verses. James 1, 13 through 18. There's this tension where James is saying, hey, take responsibility for your sin. You are the one. Battle your sin. But the answer is not try harder, do more, or be better. If you leave here and go, man, I just got to be better. I just got to go conquer my sin and do more and be better. It's not the answer. And yet the answer is also not to do nothing. Right? The, the, the goodness and the grace of Christ on the cross does not make our work unnecessary. It makes it possible. So the answer James gives is take responsibility for your sin, battle your sin, but don't do it by being better. Do it by beholding. Look at the goodness of God. Look at the goodness of God. And that's why we need Sundays. That's why we need gospel community. That's why we need the word of God. We need to constantly have things and people and scriptures and pastors that are saying, look at the goodness of God. Look at the goodness of God. Look at the goodness of God. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold your Savior. Behold a good God who could have left us in our brokenness and yet chose not to. So if you're a believer this morning, I just want to encourage you, battle your sin by beholding. And if you're not, just know that you can break that sin cycle now. You can confess, you can repent, and you can have life rather than death. And as we sing this next song, if you feel that stirring in your heart, to my right is the prayer room. We have people that would just love to talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus? How do I break this sin cycle? Because I've tried the things of the world and the fleshly desires, and you're right, there's always a hook on the other side of the lure. I want something different.